I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, media, and politics. Today, we're talking about Amazon, Google, Disney, Uber, Pfizer, Unilever, Walmart. What do all these companies have in common? Well, they're on Zephyr Teachout's list of companies that should not exist in their current form. She's going to be on the show talking to us about monopolies. What happens when a company gets so big that it dominates an industry, and what effects does that have on our lives? And later in the show, we're talking to TNR's own Osita Wanevu about cancel culture, what it is, and whether it threatens liberalism itself. And like most podcasters, we're still recording at home. We're not in a professional studio. So in later parts of this episode, you might hear some birdsong or other background noises. This is The Politics of Everything. We're joined now by Zephyr Teachout, an associate professor of law at Fordham University, whose new book is Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money. The book is about some of the biggest companies in the United States and the outsized power that they wield in politics and society. Zephyr, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Um, So the first thing I want to ask you is just to get straight what a monopoly is. Um, Because I think when we think of monopolies, a lot of people tend to think it's a company that controls nearly 100% of a market. They think of, say, Bell Telephone in the days when they owned like every phone and all the phone lines. Yeah. And and I actually want to step back a second because I think there's two definitions and they often get really confused. There's terms that mean something in law and have a particular contemporary legal meaning. Like what do courts right now consider a monopoly to be? And then Mm -hmm. there's the word monopoly as a political term. And what I'm talking about in this book is the word monopoly as a political term. The reason I think it's important to understand it as a political term is that um, for the last 40 years, people have been cowed into thinking that antitrust is for economists essentially posing as as scientists Mm -hmm. of markets who have some special technical expertise and these untrained people should not stick their noses in this area. They can't define when there's a monopoly and when there isn't. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be even using these terms. Antitrust is for the experts, not for the people. And and a core theme throughout the book is, no, antitrust is absolutely for the people, and we actually need to be wielding it and understanding its political power. So I use monopoly the way it's been used through most of American history in its public meaning, which is a, a, a company that basically has the power to govern a market instead of participate in it. It's a it's a company with dominant power. Uh-huh. And um, just to give you some sense, when Standard Oil was broken up, uh, it had less than 70% of the market. So, you know, incredible amount of dominance, but not exclusive. Mm-hmm. And I, I get the problem there. I understand it's that the word mono it's one. It's one, right. And sort of right. buried in the word. And so we think, oh, well. It's just a company that's so big that basically you sort of have to deal with them. Um, and as a smaller actor in that marketplace, you don't really have the ability to say, oh, I don't like the terms you're offering here. Can we negotiate or I'll walk away? Milton Friedman, uh, who said that a monopoly is a company that essentially has the capacity to set prices, or more broadly, mm-hmm. to set the terms of the engagement. So if you think of uh, monopolies that we're overly familiar with right now, like in the pharmaceutical arena, Gilead just 
decides what it wants to charge us. So how extensive are monopolies in the United States right now? We are in an era of extreme consolidation. There's been an ongoing rolling merger wave for 40 years. So think about any industry that you interact with and how many different players there are in it, whether you're thinking about agriculture, which I spent a lot of time on. They're mm-hmm. basically four companies who are totally dominant in meat. Think about uh, tractors. There's two. Um, and by the way, John Deere has reached its tentacles into financing and is certainly a major collector of big data. Um, so a lot of the modern monopolies are very engaged in surveillance and data collection as well. Um, think of books. I guess it's obvious. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, it is funny. When I started pitching this book, I talked to a few potential agents who were like, do you really want to talk about Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's a great example, the Amazon example, because it's not that they had been told, oh, if we put Amazon on the cover, we promise that you won't sell your book. Mm. It's that Amazon is so dominant that um, people who want to do well in their business basically jump before they're told to jump and are afraid of uh, irritating these giants. And so quiet down when it comes to criticism. Yeah. You can say, I'm not going to buy anything on Amazon, but they control so much web infrastructure. I think it's almost impossible to go online without somehow interacting with Amazon. Yeah, exactly. And even if you boycott Amazon, Amazon may not boycott you. (laughs) Basically, (laughs) you can't disengage if you're using city infrastructure that's relying on the the cloud that depends Mm -hmm. on Amazon. And for Amazon, for instance, if I'm a seller of I don't know, really shiny glow-in-the-dark Frisbees, <laughs> and Amazon sells them for $10, that's their price. Right. Amazon has set the price. Yeah. I can't mm-hmm. elsewhere say, no, I actually want to start ch- charge $11 because that's what I, I want to make that kind of profit and, and treat my workers better or, uh, right. <laughs> or, or invest in R&D. Amazon basically tells us what the price is, totally controls the market. Right. So these these alone are totally dominant. By the quote unquote consumer welfare standard, Amazon would say, um, well, look, like we're keeping prices down for the people buying. That's what we conceive of as our purpose. Um, and Walmart, I remember in the 90s when Walmart was getting huge, it was the exact same argument. Absolutely. And you're, you're right to bring up this consumer welfare standard, which is basically the contemporary way that modern economists, courts, lawyers and enforcers all of which are important players here, uh, understand the, the goal of antitrust laws is to make things cheaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the goal. And that goal came about in, again, with Reagan. And it was just a like total rewriting. It's like you take this rich, rich history of decades of people understanding, we got to watch out for private power. Private power develops into a government always. Private power has this potential for tyranny. Private power can squash creativity and said, forget all of that. It's just cleaner and simpler and more satisfying to just look for consumer prices. Right. They took out also how companies treat workers and a lot of the modern monopolies. And I use the word monopoly on purpose here. There's a technical term, which is monopsony. But again, I think it's a term that makes people scared. I don't know what that means exactly. (laughs) Just trust yourself. You know, when there's two employers, 
they can wink and nod and uh, lower prices and reduce benefits in a way that when there's 15 employers, they can't. I mean, we've seen that in tech explicitly conspiring to fix salaries. That's That's been something that is that is known about in tech. Yes. But I think like to bring it back to, I think, the great example from your book of how the consumer welfare standard has failed us is what you refer to as chickenization of the economy. Yeah. You know, if I go to the supermarket right now, I'm going to find a pretty affordable Tyson's chicken breast. And so from my point of view as a consumer, like everything in the chicken market seems to be working fine. What am I, what am I missing right. when I buy that chicken <laughs> breast at the supermarket? <laughs> right. Well, when you, what you're missing is that Tyson or Purdue or Pilgrims who control the market, I, I, I increasingly think of these as like families in the, in the mobster <laughs> sense. <laughs> you know, like you sort of divide up who does which. You fight with each other, but you also do a lot of colluding. And actually, there's a recent price fixing case against Big Chicken. They, they have territories. I mean, right. And in, in the mob, it's you would have a territory. Yes, yes, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, because of the radical shift in antitrust law in the 1980s, the distributors started buying both horizontally and vertically. So what that means is if you're a chicken farmer, you're not like walking your chicken over to Kroger's. You you rely on distributors. That makes sense. So these distributors started buying up, first of all, horizontally, which is to say buying each other so that we have just a handful of distributors left. I think Tyson's. And then they started buying vertically. So they bought seed, they bought all kinds of the the different components that go into chicken farming. And they basically said, great, Alex, you seem like a wonderful chicken farmer. And we are so happy to uh, contract with you to sell your chickens. um, But you do have to use our seed. And otherwise, you're not getting your stuff to market. You have no choice. And then we say, okay, oh, and this is actually how we want you to use the lighting in your chicken facility. Oh, and this is how we want to do the watering. And these are the specifications for the chicken house. And yes, you do have to take out a, a million dollar mortgage on that and you'll be on the hook for that. But if you don't follow our specifications, I hate to say it, we just can't work with you. Mm. And then I say, okay, Laura, I, you also seem like a great chicken farmer and I want to have the same deal with you. But whatever you do, if, if we're going to take your chicken to market, I have to make sure that you don't ever talk to Alex. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> and if you talk to Alex and compare what I'm paying him and paying you, well, you might actually figure out some negotiating power. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I'm going to pay you different amounts every month, by the way. But just don't worry. It's just because of the quality of the chicken. you got to trust me. <laughs> oh, and, every, and if we have a dispute, it goes to arbitration. And they can basically say, we're not going to pay you enough to do anything but pay your workers minimum wage and give them no benefits Mm -hmm. because we have enough insight to know how much value we can extract from you. Mm -hmm. But also, we can run experiments on you and get all the value of it. I'm going to give Laura some weird new seed this month and not give it to Alex. And you will be the subjects of these experiments, but not know why. Mm -hmm. So I could end up making more than him that month if it went well for me, but he would never be allowed to find out about that. Right. Because I would never be able to tell him. Right. You can't compare against each other. And and I think this is important, not only because it's so extractive, but because this is futile. This isn't like a competitive (laughs) market. This isn't Alex having great ideas about how to, (laughs) you know, get get more meat or Laura having ideas about how to be more humane and both of them bringing different things to the market. This is a centralized, totally centralized power 
um, putting each of you in a profoundly submissive position and also a politically submissive position. And there's great stories. You may have seen the John Oliver reporting on this, mm-hmm. on how chicken farmers certainly experience retaliation when they spoke up about this. So basically, they don't feel like they can speak up about the thing that they know the most about because mm-hmm. suddenly those eggs are bad that month and suddenly the seeds are bad and suddenly they go, they go bankrupt. Right. It puts the lie to, I think, the pat economist notion of a contract being freely entered into by two parties <laughs> yes. because it's like if this you know giant firm has complete purchasing power and can set prices, how can I negotiate with that? So a particularly troubling aspect of these contracts is the part of them whereby you as the farmer or the worker or the consumer are waiving your rights. And this is the part of the book I found fascinating and, and very different in focus from other books, I think, on this subject of monopoly, which is the centrality of arbitration to the way the system works. So I think most people assume that when there's a legal dispute, and this is certainly like what we see portrayed on television and courtroom dramas, like there's justice. So, you know, you can sue someone, you can have your day in court, you can make your case, a judge will hear it or a jury will hear it. And I think most people would be truly shocked to discover that you can sign a contract that is required, that cannot be negotiated in order for you to be allowed to make a living, whereby you waive your rights to ever have access to justice. Yeah. Can you explain... What is the system? Yes. And how does it work? Yes. Well, I, I include it in this book because I think it's really important we understand this is a rival form of government. It coexists with democracy and forms of government have judicial systems. Mm-hmm. And the judicial system of monopoly government is arbitration. And there's a sub theme that runs throughout here, which is that the language we use is so important and weird. And arbitration sounds so nice. It sounds like, oh, there's a divorced couple and they should use mediation instead of going to the judge. Right. Right? We don't, we don't, need, know, we don't like, need to get the law involved. We can just settle yes, this between exactly. ourselves. <laughs> exactly. Like what it is, is a contract to have a privately paid judge and typically paid by the big companies who does not have to follow the rules of evidence who can limit the amount of submissions, who does not have to follow pre-existing precedent and nothing is disclosed, who makes a determination about who was right and who was wrong in, for instance, an age discrimination suit. One of the ways in which arbitration sold itself in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and now it's just become ubiquitous, over half of employment contracts have it, your consumer contracts, it's everywhere, Mm -hmm. is that this will be more efficient. We won't have to go through all the cost of court. There were a few dissenting voices and the dissenting voices at the time rightly said, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That, That, you know, we've just passed all these amazing civil rights laws And now you're saying they're just costing us too much, so we should send them to a private court where they never see the light of day. Mm -hmm. Um, And in in effect, it's a way of totally gutting civil rights laws and worker rights laws without actually having to go to Congress and saying, I don't believe in worker rights. Instead, Mm -hmm. what you do is go to the courts and say, the contract was freely entered into. Right. Mm -hmm. So imagine you're, you're about to get a job at Tyson's or... McDonald's and you say, I really like this job. It's a great fit. I have my $20 in savings as a typical 24 year old, Mm -hmm. but I want to renegotiate the arbitration clause because later (laughs) when you discriminate against me, Mm. I want to be able to bring, I want to be able to bring a lawsuit. (laughs) Mm. Like that conversation doesn't happen. Yeah. 
So the other aspect of this too is not only is all this taking place in a court where everyone's being paid privately, but it's usually confidential, right? So um, that really removes an element that I think is really central to the idea of justice, which is that it takes place in the public. It can be seen to be served. The public can understand like what's at stake in the interaction between two parties. And when that's private, the public just has no idea what's going on between a big company and its workers or between a big company and a group of consumers who were completely shafted. And that just poses this huge problem, which I think your book is really trying to emphasize, which is we just don't know what monopolies are doing. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to build political momentum around that when, you know, we don't know how unfair some of these contracts are with, say, chicken farmers, because we just can't see any of disputes when they do happen. No, that's exactly right. At the time when they were sort of opening their eyes to it, there's reason to think that a lot of what they didn't want was the embarrassment. Mm. And another way to talk about the embarrassment is the stories, like the the Sinclair Lewis stories. And if you can push away those stories, that's in some ways even more powerful than the monetary value of not having those cases in court. And Amazon, by the way, once you get into this world, you start hearing from Amazon sellers. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and, yeah. and Amazon sellers are all bound by arbitration contracts and they don't have very big margins and they don't think that they're, it's going to be worth it to go to court. But those are stories that we should be able to hear. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've heard you know, probably just the edges of it. But, you know, you hear about Amazon, which has perfect data about what people are buying, introducing competing products to ones that the sellers are already selling. Yes. Or even even more egregiously, abetting the sale of fabricated products too, you know, like of knockoffs, bay bootlegs and stuff like that. I am so fascinated by Amazon's intellectual property regime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they have a regime, like this is a government and their intellectual property regime is not the U.S. government's and they use it to build power But what's fascinating, Alex, is that sometimes they arbitrarily boot people Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and sometimes they refuse to boot people after substantial evidence. (laughs) So it's not like it's not IP in just one direction. Right. It seems like it's IP to gain power. Right. It does get back to when you refer to these companies as operating as governments because they do. They have you know, policy teams. There's no transparency whatsoever. Yeah. You know, and I can't like vote to oust the lawyer who came up with their IP, you know, like I have no power over that. (laughs) Well, so this links to one question I have for you, which is it seems that antitrust law is working to keep one type of person apart, which is like there's no Amazon Sellers Guild or something that book authors have come up against. They are actually not allowed to form a union. Right. uh, Because that would violate antitrust. That would be like a cartel of book authors (laughs) getting together to set their fees for their advances. Why are workers or groups of contractors not allowed to form their own associations to fight these people? And yet monopolies are allowed, (laughs) actual monopolies. It's a great question. And I I think what those of us who are part of this antitrust revival, like the first step was just say, we need more of it. And people are like, okay, great. We need more of it. (laughs) But the more sophisticated step, which is what you're talking about, is to say, Who is allowed to coordinate is among the most essential political questions. Mm -hmm. In a real sense, co-ops aren't successful right now because of 
our existing coordination rules. So I think it's really important to not think of antitrust against big companies in a vacuum, but to allow some degrees of other coordination that allow the thriving of co-ops, that allow the thriving of coalitional groups that organize loosely within a shared industry. Mm. So what can the individual do? Like, is there a point in like deleting your Facebook account, refuse to shop at Amazon? That's one thing people talk about a lot. What do you think of that? Uh, yeah, I, I, think, um, I think it is not only not the most effective way that it's actively getting in the way of good organizing. And I've given talks about this for a handful of years now. And invariably, you get a handful of people who raise their hands saying, well, I haven't used Facebook for a month because I don't need it. <laughs> But that they automatically think if you hear about bad corporate practice, you are then have a moral obligation to quit it. Otherwise, you can't protest it. This is an insane and illogical (laughs) sequence, but it has some deep, powerful moral roots. And I understand why people are drawn to it. I think we all are like, I don't want to be part of this bad thing. And I think it's really important we move away from a boycott model because a boycott model creates tension between the company and private individuals as consumers, which is a pretty weak role. Mm-hmm. Um, it may look powerful, but instead of the tension between members of a polity and Congress. Mm-hmm. And so it's like Facebook, will they or won't they do what we demand? Instead, we should be saying, hey, Pelosi. This is what we demand. That's where we need to have the tension. Uh, I know the most fun part of writing about any giant political problem is when you are asked to simply explain what we need to do about it. Uh, So, (laughs) (laughs) but people may think that there's a sort of break everyone up versus regulate everything versus nationalize everything. You were sort of rejecting a sort of universal one size fits all approach. Yes. So uh, solution one is you should make it part of all your politics. So that means actually demanding a lot more of Congress, not supporting uh, candidates for Congress who don't have clear views on this. There are a lot of Democrats who don't want to break up big tech. Let's talk about them in primaries. Mm -hmm. But the second is we just got to reject the false choice of nationalize or break up. And I think the best example that proves this is the Department of Defense, the most nationalized of nationalized (laughs) programs. Mm-hmm. Um, is now, because of consolidation, dealing with five contractors instead of 65 over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And those five contractors just dictate the terms. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to nationalize a program like a Green New Deal or Medicare for All or Healthcare for All, you're still going to be dealing with private entities. And if those private entities are totally concentrated, our prices are going to be out the roof and they're going to have outsized power. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are some like deeper philosophical tensions for some people who want to get rid of markets altogether. And I definitely do not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the there isn't a core tension between those people like me who want to nationalize things and want to break things up. Mm-hmm. Why not both? <laughs> Why not both? <laughs> the problem is big enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Well, uh, on that note, thank you so much for talking with us. And the book will be out by the time this airs, I believe. So, yeah, buy it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on and for reading it. Thank you. Okay, see ya. All right. (laughs) We'll be back in a moment to talk with Osita Wenevu about cancel culture.
our second segment today, we are joined by New Republic staff writer Osito Wanevu, who's going to talk to us about an article he wrote in early July, The Willful Blindness of Reactionary Liberalism, about a band of like-minded, self-described liberals who have elevated something called cancel culture to a national emergency. Debates about free speech, particularly on college campuses and increasingly free speech within the media itself, have been raging for years, and it's a subject Osita in particular has been following for a while. Your piece, I've already seen it described as a reaction to the, the Harper's letter, but it was published beforehand, right? I think it came out a day before. But yeah, people have written to me saying I, I thought that that was a really cogent and persuasive response to the Harper's letter, which I had no idea about when I was writing it. <laughs> so the Harper's letter, it's an open letter with a number of signatories from academia, from journalism and media, all of whom I think see the letter as, as a message that free expression is being curtailed constrained by a new censorious attitude and and illiberalism coming from the left, mostly. They do talk about Trump in that letter. They they mentioned that there are also very real threats to speech being made by this administration, by Republicans. I personally would argue that those are the dominant threats to speech that exist in American society today, but they focus ultimately on the social media stuff and the internal battles within liberal institutions as the central conflicts that are going to determine whether or not a liberal society survives. Right. And actually, I read in Isaac Chutner's interview with Thomas Chatterton Williams, who's one of the organizers of the letter, that the note about Trump was actually added fairly late in the drafting process. And the impetus for the letter seems to have been to focus on censoriousness from the left. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the big examples people have been talking about was the firing of David Shore from Civis Analytics, which is this progressive data analysis firm. When the Floyd protests broke out, he shared an article suggesting that nonviolent protest is superior to violent protest in terms of political efficacy. Um, he got a lot of pushback and criticism about this. Some of it was, I think, tethered to the actual claims being made in the article and, and his defenses of it. Some of it was people calling him a racist and so on. But he lost his job. I don't think that we've ever gotten the full story of all that happened there and, and why it happened. Yeah. But that has sort of become the central example of people who say, look, cancel culture has gone too far. We are now throwing out good people from liberal institutions on the basis of woke norms that we should reject. Right. So one of the ideas here is that this is a completely unprecedented in this country, new punitive discourse, right? And um, you have actually been looking back through some old archives, newspapers from the 1960s, I believe. And you found basically like pretty strong evidence that this is not new. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the arguments that we've heard over the past few years a lot is that we're only talking about offensive jokes or whatever. And we're only talking about these kinds of cultural issues because we've already defeated racism as a legal matter. And back in the 60s, when segregation was a very real thing, they weren't talking about children's books and they weren't talking about bad words. That's not true. The cast of characters within these cultural debates has changed, but the actual activities, saying something is offensive, saying that somebody should be ousted or fired, these are things that people have always kind of done. Mm -hmm. This gets at a really interesting, I think, contradiction. A lot of the cancel culture debate has been about should employers have the right to fire people for having controversial views? 
that sounds like a labor argument to me. But then at the same time, I think that the people who are outraged about people losing their jobs for controversial views will occasionally also express this idea that the problem at these places, especially in media companies, is that too many people working for this newspaper organize themselves to attack their boss. Yeah. I think you're right in saying that this is ultimately a labor issue. These were situations in which not the bosses themselves, but the staffers at the publication said, hey, something has happened here that is contradictory to the values that we think we should be upholding as a publication. Something has happened here that we think might ultimately be damaging to the safety of the staff. As a consequence of people coming together and saying that, at the New York Times, you had bosses lose their jobs, right? And this is, to me, just standard labor action. In fact, it, it is frankly, the kind of action that you hope to see happening, even if you disagree with the content of the argument. When one claims, well, now Twitter is the boss of the New York Times, um, to me, what I saw as a complete outsider was like, if by Twitter you mean black New York Times employees on Twitter, right. then sure. <laughs> right. Functionally, every institution is governed by a particular set of values and ideals, and sometimes those values and ideals change, particularly in situations where you have broader cultural upheaval. So what it means to be a liberal in good standing or a member of a predominantly liberal institution in good standing has changed over the past couple of years. You now have to take trans issues seriously, and some people don't want to do that. Like You have to take police violence seriously, and people who don't take these things seriously will find it harder to appeal to liberal audiences and and will find themselves less comfortable in liberal institutions. But that does not mean, I think this is critical, that doesn't mean that free speech or free expression has been restricted in any way. These people can start their own publications. They can say whatever they want on Twitter. There are no restrictions on their ability to find and reach audiences that will agree with them. But you're not entitled to the undying and enduring support and respect of progressives and liberals. That's, that's, I think, what's fundamentally at issue. These people want not just the right to say whatever they want, which they already have, Mm -hmm. but they want to be able to say things that are now controversial while still being, I think, lauded as good people and smart people by the same audiences that they're used to. It feels like what feels to them like a loss of free speech is, in fact, a sort of constricting of the things they had previously been allowed to get away with. Right. The Washington Post, as I like to point out, has at least two columnists employed as regular contributors who are actually Trump supporters, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not aware of a campaign to see those people hoisted off stage, right? So it's not just about the content of what people are saying. I don't think it's necessarily the case that like somebody who is skeptical of identity politics or or woke them, whatever you want to call it, is now unable to write for these publications. I think that these writers have distinguished themselves as people who write in a really, really unserious way about these issues. And that's what provokes a lot of the ire that's directed at them. I think it's worth saying, too, that the the principles uh, in themselves seem wishy-washy to me. Like, it's become very commonplace to hear people say, well, nobody should lose their job for having a controversial view. I don't think anybody actually believes this. No, that's, mm-hmm. that's insane. <laughs> you know, if, if you are blogging in your free time about why pedophilia is defensible or you're a raging anti-Semite and you lose your job, I don't think you're going to have very many free speech defenders coming to your defense. We just saw, I think, in, within the last week, week and a half, Blake Neff, this writer at Fox News, uh, who was found to have written racist posts on a private internet forum, 
he was fired by Tucker Carlson. And people asked, you know, people who wrote the letter, other people in this cancel culture discourse, well, is this an example of cancel culture? Uh, here you have somebody who was fired from their job for saying controversial things. And they're like, no, no, that was okay in this case, you know. <laughs> so uh, I think we do have to wrap this up, but I did want to make sure we noted that uh, noted Harper's letter signer J.K. Rowling has sued a children's news site for calling her a deeply unpleasant person. And she won, actually won her, that's the UK libel laws for you. She won her libel suit against it. <laughs> yeah, and they issued a, a big apology. <laughs> How is that not an opinion? That's not uh, libel. I mean, it's, it's funny because I think one of the responses to the letter has been to point out all these little minor hypocrisies. But I do think there's almost, almost no such thing as a free speech absolutist. As you point out with the Blake Neff example, no one actually really objected to that. For the most part, like, you know, we're talking about setting the boundaries of debate. And I also wonder if the way that we're having this debate has been skewed by the fact that it's led by people who are columnists, who are, like you pointed out, Alex, they're not just your rank-and-file staff writer who's on a beat, who has to please their editor. They, they feel that they are this special class of writers who should have carte blanche to write absolutely anything they want. And I, I do feel that that intense individualism of the most privileged type of writer has to skew the way we're having this debate. It's it's such a huge gap between that conception of oneself and the kind of like group affiliations that Cedar's talking about here. I think you're right in saying that the profession of a lot of the people who are in this debate is skewing their sense of what liberal society, from my perspective, actually requires to function. We have a lot of different liberal democracies in the world with very different attitudes towards speech than we have in this country. And uh, on most days, nobody really regards them as totalitarian because they're more restrictive about certain things. But I think that if you're a writer and regard yourself as a controversialist, you adopt a certain view of speech. Um, you, I don't want to call it maximalist because I think you're right, Alex, in that it's not really maximalist and nobody really lives up to that fully. But you adopt a view of speech in which you see it as the central the pillar of pillar, you know, the, pillar the thing that, keeping yeah. the thing that keeps you know everything running, and I think I think it, liberalism is functionally a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, seems like a good note to end on. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, Osita, for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. This is the politics of everything. Please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please take advantage of the New Republic's exclusive summertime offer. Get unlimited access to newrepublic.com for three months for just $5. Available for a limited time at tnr.com slash special offer. Thanks for listening.